a thousand planets and spreading out. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. To the Batmals. May the force be with you. Who is that mask man? Avengers, assemble. Good afternoon and welcome to the Fantastic Forum. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell, and for the next hour, we're going to excite, entertain, elucidate, and educate you with news, information, and discussion about your favorite geeks. This is Fantastic Forum. It's a geek world now, and everyone else is just living in it. First, some genre-related news before we get to today's show. Marvel Studios' Black Panther earned unique distinction earlier this week. The movie was the first Marvel film to win a Grammy. Actually, two. Music from the movie was recognized at the 61st Grammy Awards as composer Ludwig Göransson's score won for Best Score, Soundtrack, Visual Media, and Black Panther, the album, featuring music inspired by the movie and produced and curated by Kendrick Lamar, tied in the category of Best Rap Performance for the cut King's Dead by Lamar, J-Rock, Future, and James Blake. Goranson's score has already won a Golden Globe and a Critics' Choice Award and is nominated for an Oscar in the category of Best Original Score. Lamar's curated album had been nominated in seven Grammy categories, including Album of the Year. The album's lead song, All the Stars, is nominated for an Oscar in the category of Best Original Song. Good luck. Solicitations for Detective Comics number 1000 have been issued. This issue marks the 80th anniversary of the legendary Batman. The character, created by Bob Kane, Bill Finger, and Jerry Robinson, debuted in Detective Comics number 27 way back in March of 1939. Issue number 1000 is slated for release on March 27th. You can read the first eight pages of the book as part of the solicitation, a link to which may be found on the Fantastic Forum Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Fantastic Forum. Nickelodeon has a new Star Trek animated series for kids in development. No details are available at this time on the plot, but the production is being led by Kevin and Dan Hagman. You may know them for their work on such animated shows as Ninja Ghosts, Masters of Spin Jitsu, and Troll Hunters. They also worked on the stories for the Lego Movie and the Lego Ninja Go Movie. This will be the first new Star Trek project to debut outside of CBS All Access. NASA this week officially concluded the mission of the Mars Rover Opportunity. The rover landed on January 25, 2004, and although it was only designed to operate for 90 days, it continued to function and broadcast images for 15 years. Contact with the rover was lost during dust storms in June of last year. The rover went into hibernation, but it was hoped that communication could be reestablished. NASA has speculated that the rover has either suffered a catastrophic failure or its solar panels remain covered by dust from the storms. Either way, as the robot has failed to respond to over a thousand signals since August 2018, the decision was made to declare the end of the mission. During the course of its mission, Opportunity sent over 210,000 pictures of the Martian surface back to Earth. And this weekend, here in the D.C. metropolitan area, Katsukon is underway out at National Harbor. And the show is on through tomorrow. You can get more information if you visit the website at katsukon.org. That's K-A-T-S-U-C-O-N dot O-R-G. I've sort of affectionately referred to this convention as... LobbyCon because of where it's located uh, over in National Harbor. I've been to this show and never made it actually into the convention area, hanging out and fellowshipping with fellow fans in the lobby, although I'm told that the situation has been resolved. 
uh, as far as that. Anyway, uh, on today's show, we are talking to James Thorne. Dr. Thorne is a space scientist as well as a musician who has some interesting projects on the horizon. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here, Dr. Thorne. <laughs> thank you, Yuli. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Good gracious. So uh, one of the things that has impressed me about you is your versatility. Uh, not only are you a scientist, but you're a musician as well. <laughs> That's right. It's an unlikely combination, I guess, but there are a few of us out there. Well, but is it really an unlikely combination? I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I, I'm not really sure in terms of the area of science in which you specialize, but I, I think that, well, I'm told rather, you know, not being a science specialist, that there is uh, some correlation between music and mathematics and uh, the sciences in general. That's absolutely right. As far as I know, there's a, there's a, a general agreement that a uh, facility with mathematics can certainly help with music composition, music performance. I guess what I meant was I don't think there are too many scientists who put that much time and effort into becoming accomplished musicians, ah. but certainly the uh, potential <clears throat> excuse me, is there for that, uh, given, as we were saying, you know, math seems to correlate well with musical composition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I tell you what, let's, get, let's start with um, some of your connections here in Arlington. So I know that uh, you are involved with the, uh, the David uh, M. Brown Planetarium. That, that's right, David M. Brown. Mm -hmm. He was an astronaut that was unfortunately lost on Columbia, who I believe went to high school at Washington, now Liberty High School. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, again, this tickle. The, uh, the planetarium itself is having its 50th anniversary this year because it was started in 1969 in the same way that uh, the Apollo 11 moon landing was in 1969. So that's kind of fun. And yes, I'm connected to them through the Friends of the Arlington Planetarium who have had me come in and do several concerts the last few years where they've taken some of my shows about space for kids and created sky dome shows in the planetarium which is really fun to watch <laughs> and the, the that talent, is so cool <laughs> so much talent there i really appreciate the staff that have done that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well and i understand they've done some really high quality productions uh, connected well it, it, it entwining your work with uh, the stuff that they're showing to the audience and uh, i mean real uh, take your breath away type stuff <laughs> yes there were two shows so far there's the little bear which is about all the different animals that one can see in the sky as the constellations, the little bear being, of course, the Little Dipper. So I wrote a song about that, about my two uh, child character heroes in my songs. There's a boy named Tommy and a girl named Laura. And so what they did at the planetarium was they actually depicted the kids going out and seeing these animals in the sky to include the artwork, which they projected with the star projector. And it's just so cool. And they made it match exactly the lyrics of the song so the uh, the different constellations came up at the right points in the song. But of course I'm dealing with astronomers so when I told them in you know where these or when they heard which animals were in the songs they checked their star maps to make sure that I was right when I said that out in front of Little Bear they saw lions lying there. They wanted to make sure that everything was arranged, and I promised them that I actually used a star chart when I was writing the song. <laughs> of course you did. And they, and they had to pick the right time of year so that it would work w with their software mm -hmm. to depict that. And mm -hmm. it, w it was quite uh, interesting to hear this other take on what I had been doing with my song. And then, of course, to see the visualization really took my breath away the first time I saw it. Yeah, yeah. The second one they did was about a moon of Jupiter called Europa, mm -hmm. which is an ice-covered moon. It's one of the four Galilean moons, meaning it's one of the four largest, and that's why Galileo could see them. And there's a thought that there might be life in the water underneath Europa, Europa's surface of ice, in the same way that there is life on the seafloor of the Earth near the, the hot water vents. Mm-hmm. When I was an exchange scientist with NASA, briefly, about 10, 15 years ago, I was looking at trajectory designs to go to the planet Jupiter and visit Europa as well as some of the other moons. And so it means a lot to me to write a song about this. I went ahead and did that 
it sounds like Johnny Cash goes to Jupiter because <laughs> I have a baritone voice. But people seem to like it, including the mission director of the current Europa Clipper mission at NASA. Mm. I've, I, I know him, and mm. uh, he heard the song and shared it with his group of Europans, as he calls them. That's his team of people working on Europa Clipper. <laughs> I haven't asked him this question, but I'd love it if they stored that song on the spacecraft when they mm, launch it. <laughs> mm. Well, I, I'm sure that's inevitable. <laughs> uh, I hope, hope so. <clears throat> wow. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. This is Fantastic Forum. I'm talking with Dr. James Thorne. Okay, so um, now, now I, and, and this is a bit of a departure, but I have to ask... Uh, since you just mentioned going to Jupiter. Are you a fan of 2001 at all? Oh, the, the, Space Odyssey, yes. the original movie. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I was young when it came out, and I went with my father, and I'll admit I didn't understand it at all at the time. But since mm-hmm. then, I you know, read the book and saw the movie again and know more about space. But it was one of the most accurate depictions of space travel mm-hmm. up to that point in cinema. Mm-hmm. Well, and... Groundbreaking special effects, uh, Doug Trumbull and his crew, uh, what they did with that stuff. Uh, I mean, and still a science fiction classic. You know, Stanley Kubrick just uh, yet again knocking it out of the park you know, with what he did. <laughs> and Arthur C. Clarke. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you talk about the original source material, you know, and, and I, I was remiss because I did not mention. Arthur C. Clarke, and that should have been the very first name that I mentioned. You know, it's fascinating how much he saw ahead of time. He, he talked about communication satellites in geostationary orbit, which is something that is still attributed to him now. Another cool thing, I think, is that monolith that appears in the movie that you mm-hmm. just mentioned, 2001, mm-hmm. has the dimensions, let's see, what is it, 1, 4, and 9, meaning the squares of the first three integers, so the assumption is that 16 is in the time dimension. Did you ever hear that before? He, he... I did not, and I don't understand any of what you said. That's some real science stuff there. <laughs> so when the astronaut goes in and says, my God, it's full of stars, stars yeah, he's seeing in another dimension. Oh. And that's what um, Arthur C. Clarke meant to do. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, very cool stuff. I had no idea so much thought went into that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, and then, of course, uh, Clarke continued writing these books. I mean, I had thought 2001 was going to be it. And then all of a sudden you had 2010 and then there's like 2016. I mean, the, the, it, it, it kept going on. I was like, wait, what the heck? <laughs> so, uh, but I, I basically, I think I checked out after like 2010 and I wish that, cause I remember they had Roy Scheider in that one. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, of course yeah. playing the, um, uh, and, oh crap. Now I can't think of the character's name. But, um, you know, the uh, he, he was the lead scientist who was on Earth who didn't get to go on the mission in, uh, and it'll, it'll come to me in a second, but who didn't get to go on the mission in the first one. And then they had him and they had, uh, you know, Chandra who had worked with uh, the HAL 9000 computer and they actually had <laughs> the uh, the brother unit to HAL and they, you know, cannibalized parts. and But the whole idea that you got to find out and I'm totally, I'm totally geeking out and you know going off on a tangent with this. <laughs> That's okay. But you, that you found out why Hal malfunctioned, because that was, I mean, that was sort of the story. I mean, you know, you had old man versus the machine, and you know all of that. And when they explained what had happened, it all made so much sense. I was like, well, wow, okay. You know, an- another little interesting tidbit there. If you think about the letters Hal for heuristic algorithmic, which is what that stood for, H A L. Yeah. According to Arthur C. Clarke, or at least people who asked him this question later, those letters this are... the IBM They're thing. one yeah. step ahead of <laughs> yes. IBM in the alphabet. Yes, yes, how funny. And the other thing is the aliens told the Earthlings of all the worlds, you must not go to Europa. Europa, exactly, right, right. And, yes. and the implication is maybe there's already life there. So who knows if we will find life on Europa. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, and that sort of begs another question, though, because, and I'm all over the map here, I know, but... Uh, many of the scientists that I have had the privilege of speaking to have talked about how much uh, the fiction, uh, whether it's uh, science, classic science fiction literature or television or movies, influence them in terms of their chosen path and profession. Uh, was it the same way with you? Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, <clears throat> when I was a little boy, I was allowed to stay up to watch two things past my normal bedtime. Mm-hmm. One was Star Trek, 
and the other was anything to do with the Apollo landings. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, uh, people of my age group who are scientists and engineers, aerospace business, whatever, are known as the children of Apollo mm. because of that influence. Mm. That's interesting. Well, and uh, you, the fact that you also mentioned Star Trek, which is, I mean, I that's a passion of mine. I mean, I'm a longtime Trekker. And what Roddenberry did with that show and the attention to detail, the fact that they had uh, actual uh, science, uh, I, I guess I'll call them reference people who, you know, he'd send the scripts and they'd read through them and say, okay, well, if you want to do this, this is kind of how you would go about it. And, you know, that in that way, Star Trek differed from uh, some of the other shows of the time, like Lost in Space, where they didn't bother <laughs> worrying about how technically accurate the stuff was. No, Irwin Allen was not burdened with any kind of uh, scientific understanding. And people would ask about this, but um, I'm a fan of both shows, actually. I even have the full Blu-ray set oh. of Lost in Space because I'm paying particular all attention. All three seasons? To, all three seasons. Oh, okay. Because I was very curious about the robot as I'm designing these puppets for my own new show. Mm -hmm. But um, as for Roddenberry, I'm very fortunate in that I got to meet him just before he passed. Oh. Uh, I, was, I was in Los Angeles at a Star Trek convention when I used to still do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't do that anymore. I, well, oh, <laughs> I, I was wearing a Next Generation uniform to try to look a little bit like Riker. And I actually got interviewed on NBC. And oh, cool. I didn't find out until years later I have a credit on, an acting credit on IMDb because I appeared on this thing called the Star Trek 25th Anniversary uh, Special. Yeah. I was introduced by Leonard Nimoy, although I, I didn't meet him that time, but I met most of the original crew. But yes, Gene was trying to make the science an extrapolation of what might be plausible mm -hmm. without having it get in the way. If you read the book, The Making of Star Trek, which was written in 1968, and I still have an original copy, which is all about how they made the show, mm -hmm. he didn't want someone to pull out a phaser and have to explain, oh, this is a phaser. So there was no there was no uh, explanation of that any more than you would expect in a cop show where someone would pull out a, a pistol because exactly. he also wrote uh, uh, cop shows, cop shows yeah. prior. Mm -hmm. So he wanted it to all be sort of accepted in a quiet way that that science was there and then focus on the character development and the morality stories that Star Trek had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and so incredibly artfully done. In fact, I was on social media uh, last night and um, because there are a couple of Star Trek groups of which I'm a part and one of the things that we were talking about in in one of these groups were the beautiful designs of uh, art director Matt Jeffries and particularly the Enterprise uh. and I could go on because the combination of the classic saucer and rocket designs but that he combined to make something unique and beautiful i mean the enterprise or the, i should say the constitution class yes. starship mm -hmm. is such a beautiful design I, I saw a wonderful video on that the other day about how if you use the the greek golden ratio are you familiar with that number i am not it's um uh, 1.618034 it's it's a uh, it's it it's a very common number in artwork you see it in greek architecture it has to do with the uh, i think it's two times two times the cosine of 72 degrees or something like that it, it I'll appears take your word for okay it. <laughs> you can see it in a in the sides of a triangle from the point of a pentagram and so on it's uh, from an artistic standpoint it's very good for comp for composition of photography and that sort of thing mm -hmm. if you look at matt jeffrey's design of the original constitution class enterprise from so many different directions, you can find that ratio. Really? And it's pleasing to us uh, human beings in a visual way mm -hmm. from many different directions. And so later when they redesigned for the, the later versions of the Enterprise and so on, I don't dislike them, but they don't quite have that same, to me, the same uh, balance of appeal mm. that you see from that original design. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, now, um, sort of pivoting back, uh, you described yourself as one of the children of Apollo. <laughs> yes. Okay. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm mature enough to to remember <laughs> when we uh, first landed on the moon, and uh, what an exciting summer that was, and how everybody gravitated to you know that was something that united us all uh, as humanity. 
And, uh, you know, but uh, in, in the interim period, because uh, it seemed like we were reaching for the stars, we actually went to the moon, and now we've, and, and so much came out of that, so many technologies that we use uh, as sort of commonplace today. But I had been hoping, and it, particularly if you look at the fiction, I had imagined by now that we would at least have a permanent base on the moon and, you know, perhaps from there be staging a mission to Mars. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I mean, and now I'm asking you to put the scientist hat back on here. I, okay. And not that you ever took it off. But uh, wh- what's happened in terms of the commitment to exploration that we had during the 60s? And, well, I mean, of course, you know, we had the Challenger disaster, the Columbia disaster. I know that you know, maybe that soured us a little bit. Also, the fact that uh, in terms of uh, the the commerce of it all, you know, I mean, it's very expensive to do this. And uh, I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate uh, about space travel that you have to take everything with you that you need, even the air you breathe, you know? I mean, it's just such an incredibly difficult sort of undertaking, you know, to where it seems as if now we've gone uh, less with manned missions to the uh, the space probes, you know? So, um, you know, uh, what has happened? Is there the likelihood that we will go back to manned missions Will we be going to the moon again? Will we have a base? Will we be going to Mars? Please. I think the answer to all that is yes. I think that will happen eventually. But back in the 1960s, when John F. Kennedy had originally put that goal in place to go to the moon and send a person there and bring them back safely to the Earth, that was a specific, uh, that was a specific goal that was chosen deliberately to show American expertise compared to the Soviet Union of the time. Mm. There were other goals that were discussed. If you read about it in detail, going and landing on the moon and coming back was was one of a number of things that had been proposed. And not everyone at NASA thought that was the best thing because they were Mm. more interested in the science than just the, the act of putting a living human being on the moon and bringing them back. What it did was it consumed an enormous amount of the budget of NASA at the time for an incredible thing that they did, but at the same time took away from some of the other stuff that they had been planning to do prior to the announcement of that goal. Hmm. And so when when President Kennedy was assassinated and Lyndon Johnson continued the program, they were doing that very much in Kennedy's memory and in his honor. Um, But in 1967, when the astronauts were lost, in the fire. Oh, Apollo 1. That could have easily ended that program entirely had it not been, in my opinion, for the fact that John F. Kennedy had been assassinated and became an American hero. And in his memory, we had to do it. You know what I mean? The, The congressional will was there to make it happen and to fund it. Recently, I got to meet Gene Kranz, who was the director flight director for, I think, all the odd-numbered Apollo missions as well as some of the earlier Mercury and Gemini. I met him at the Air and Space Museum, and uh, I asked him, we were in the big um, IMAX auditorium, place was full, I I had a nice seat nearby, I was sitting nearby a friend of mine named Mike Griffin, who was the former NASA administrator, and I, I said to Gene, if there had been an Apollo 20, if there had been those three more missions that were actually planned, where would the landing site have been? And he looked at me with this grin and he said, ooh, that's an interesting question. He said, if we could have done it, we were trying to impress Congress to keep the funding there. We were going to land on what he referred to as the back side of the moon or the far side. side. There is no such thing as a dark side of the moon, but but not permanently (laughs) anyway. But uh, he wanted to land on the far side. And then they would have to use communication satellites around a Lagrange point, which is exactly what the Chinese have just done with their their lander which was landed, you know, when that side was lit on the moon. But um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. The, the funding got cut. So to answer your question of why haven't, why haven't we done more of these things, mm. it's very much the money. Mm. Now, in, at the current time, people are looking at mining of asteroids and some very valuable minerals and that sort of thing. Meanwhile, uh, crew transport is being worked out by SpaceX and Boeing and others to try to support the space station and, and future plans. Right. So I think 
it can happen, but what has to happen is that the expense has to be under control. And I've, I'm a big fan of SpaceX and what they've done to try to reduce the cost to orbit and that sort of thing. I think if we are going to go and colonize the moon or Mars, as Elon Musk has said he wants to do, it has to be done in a more cost-efficient manner than what was done uh, during Apollo. As mm -hmm. much of a fan as I am of all that, it just wasn't sustainable from a, a budget standpoint. Mm. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. This is Fantastic Forum. I'm talking with Dr. James Thorne. Well, and you raise a very interesting uh, question in my mind with all of this, because uh, sort of the privatization, and we've seen privatization in so many different industries, uh, areas that have been historically handled by governments. You know, now, I mean, stuff like the prison systems and uh, even, you know, elements of our military. And so I suppose it stands to reason that privatization of space exploration, particularly given that it, this thing has got to show a profit if we're going to be able to justify the expenditures. So, um, you know, a, a SpaceX or, um, geez, what's, I, the, the, there's the other one. Uh, the Blue Origin. That's that's the Amazon uh, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. I okay, mm -hmm. all right. I was thinking I, I was thinking that there was a, a, another one that I can't remember the name of, and I should have all this right at the tip <laughs> of my tongue. But um, yeah, but the, the fact that you've got and now they're all in competition to figure out who can, you know, and, and they're taking money <laughs> from people. Yeah. I understand they're selling seats, even though you know they don't exactly have the the all of that worked out. Um, so, I mean, is that the future of uh, the space program, you know, to have uh, private companies and individuals that are providing this service, even to the government? I think what would make sense, uh, a future that I could see happening, working uh, now and again with NASA, is that the cost of putting things into space should be uh, handled by the private companies that are building very efficient, reusable uh, launchers. But when it comes to the high-tech payloads and spacecraft and long-duration capsules, say, for the crew, that's where I think NASA should be spending their money, is at the high-end technical development of what's being carried into space, and then treat space launch as a service, which is sort of what's happening with the privatization anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, Virgin Galactic was the one that okay. I was trying to think of yeah. that I couldn't, you know. You know, but, uh, Bert, Bert Rutan, who's done a lot of work over the years in mm -hmm. uh, what they call it, scaled composites that, that contribute to the Virgin uh, spacecraft and so on. I met him when I was 16 years old, getting ready to go to college. Oh, wow. I was at Oshkosh at this international air show, mm -hmm. and he had just come out with the very easy and another smaller aircraft. And my father and I went to meet him at a booth. Mm -hmm. This is in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, mm. <laughs> in 1978, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I told him, I want to go to Purdue to study astronautics just like Neil Armstrong. And he looked at me and he said, you'll do fine as long as you keep your mind on math instead of the ladies. <laughs> 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 he said, Purdue's a fine school, but it doesn't matter. You need to focus on your math. I said, That's okay. great advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be a way to do both, though. <laughs> I, I think you just take them at the right time, but, but yes. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Well, and, and that sort of uh, begs another question, because uh, I was watching something on, uh, it might have been sci-fi, the History Channel, uh, and I had never given any consideration to this but as a science, but they were talking about terraforming, and uh, I, there's been a lot of uh, science fiction-y type stuff that I've seen where it seems as if the ultimate goal is not only for us to reach Mars, but then to terraform Mars and sort of make uh, another uh, habitable uh, sort of environment for us in our own solar system. And the argument was being made that we would um, it, it test this uh, science out on the moon and terraform the moon. How likely is it that we might see something like that? I think it's much more likely on Mars uh, because there isn't much on the moon other than the regolith. There's no, they think there may be some ice. There have been that was detections was of that at the South Pole. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. But an interesting point that SpaceX has made about Mars is that what thin atmosphere there is is mostly carbon dioxide. Hmm. Well, the nice thing about that is that plants 
like carbon dioxide. Exactly. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So you, <clears throat> if you made a, a, a dome that's pressurized, one could use the naturally occurring carbon dioxide for the plants, which would then produce oxygen. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't, I don't know that you could terraform the entire planet, but certainly one could consider creating a colony based on that idea and perhaps go into caves where they could find water ice, which is a, a point that I bring up in one of my, my songs on my album for the kids, that you can take the water ice and split it into hydrogen and oxygen and make rocket fuel. Mm, wow. Hey, have you seen, there's a, um, a wonderful show. It was just, it ended its second season on the History Channel. It's called Mars. Have you seen any of that? I have not, just a few clips. I haven't seen mm. the show, though. Yeah. Well, and I, my assumption is, based on some of the things that you're saying, that they have taken, and it's, it's, it's almost presented sort of like a, a docudrama, because there's the, um, uh, the, the part with the Mars exploration, but they also have uh, documentary-style footage, um, actually, from here on Earth, and they're talking about, I mean, but not really docudrama, because it, this is all real stuff. And they're sort of cutting from, oh, yes, 2042 on Mars. And, yeah, this is us here. And we're talking to Elon Musk about <laughs> how we would conceivably, you know, get to this other place. Mm -hmm. But uh, fascinating because uh, the first Earth colony on Mars, it was exactly the way you described. They had to find a cavern. They needed to find some ice. And they set this thing up. Uh, you know, underground. And I was like, wow, okay. So, you know, clearly somebody has been paying attention to something somewhere. Yeah, that's the right. came up with this. Definitely mm -hmm. the right way to do it. You'd, you'd, you'd want the cave for protection from radiation. Presumably you could seal it so there could be an atmosphere, water, ice, all that sort of thing. That would make sense. And and yes, the moon is interesting at the South Pole and so on, but I don't think one would ever find those the, the same combination of elements that you mm. would on Mars. Mm. Well, and the other interesting thing about this uh, Mars shows on the History Channel, uh, there was some sort of um, governmental, and it was like a united governmental body that had launched the initial mission, but then there was private industry, and they mm. came too. And you saw the sort of uh, tug of war, uh, at least on Earth, between the governmental entity and the private corporation, but the colonists all had to sort of, hey, look, we're all trying to survive. And so, yeah, we'll let them worry about the protocols and all that. You know, we're there are practical elements to what we're doing and how we have to uh, support each other's colonization efforts here on this new planet. Mm -hmm. So I thought all of that was right. I know there wasn't really a question there. But I thought it was all very entertaining show. You might want to take a look at that. All right. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I tell you what, um, we, you've, you've mentioned uh, some of your songs a couple of times. So uh, let's play one. In fact, uh, you, you, well, uh, Europa is one that you mentioned. Yes, so, Mission mm -hmm. to Europa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, all right. Well, then, then let's do it. And Tommy went along with her They found it soon An icy moon At Europa There would be below the ice A deep dark sea Where ships could dive And might survive Way down low Below the ice of Europa Kids could find Brand new life Hopefully When they go Below the ice of Europa and snow deep inside the icy moon they had to look through dark and gloom to see if signs were left behind way down low below the ice of Europa kids could find brand new life hopefully when they go below the ice of Europa things could be swimming free in that sea It's the smoothest icy ball Laura sent a robot out to swim the sea And try to scout for tracks and marks 
sharks Tommy gave the robot fuel to run for years And use its tools to search alone And phone back home Way down low below the ice of Europa Kids could find brand new life It's the smoothest icy ball After many years went by The robot did its best to try To find some clues And send the news Someday we may know the truth With extraordinary proof That life could be Down in that sea Way down low Below the ice of Europa Kids could find brand new life, hopefully When they go below the ice of Europa Things could be swimming free in that sea Things could be swimming free in that sea You are very talented, sir. <laughs> Thank you. I tried to put a couple little jokes in there, <laughs> but I also tried to get a quote in there from Carl Sagan, mm -hmm. who said that uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And I, I really uh, agree with him on that and tried to put a, a, that line into the song because we don't know if there's any life way down low below the ice of Europa. But there might be, and that's the trick, is that we just keep looking. And a good friend of mine in the space business told me many years ago, every time we go someplace we haven't been before, we are always surprised. Mm. Well, you know, that I, I suppose that's why we keep going, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I tell you what, uh, Dr. Thorne, uh, we have reached the point in the show where we need to uh, take a short break, of course, Fantastic Forum comes to you via WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington. We are a community radio station. That means we're non-commercial. And so we rely on the ongoing generosity of our underwriters, our sponsors, and our listeners for the totality of the operation of the radio station. And we'd very much like for you to consider becoming an underwriter of the content of the station or a sponsor of one or more of the individual shows found here on WERA. Visit the website at WERA.FM. That'll tell you all about us. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. This is Fantastic Forum. I'm talking with Dr. James Thorne on today's episode. But stick with us because we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the Fantastic Forum here on WERA 96.7 FM. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. We are talking to space scientist and musician Dr. James Thorne on today's show. And I have, I got to tell you, I've really been enjoying this conversation. Uh, you are so knowledgeable and versatile, and I'm just. I, I got to tell you, I'm so impressed <laughs> now. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, so speaking a little bit about your versatility. So, um, you, uh, in addition to being a scientist, you're a musician. How did you come to that? Well, thank you for asking that. Um, that way, way back in 1973, the world lost a wonderful singer-songwriter of stories, songs, and humor named Jim Croce. And I'm from Pennsylvania originally, and he was from Pennsylvania. And when I was taking swimming lessons at my local YMCA in my little town, very Norman Rockwell, you know, I, I would go there, and after he passed, they had a jukebox in there that would play his songs all the time. I had taken a little bit of piano, but I really loved what I was hearing, the guitar and these songs about Bad, Bad Leroy Brown and Time in a Bottle and these beautiful things that he had done in these, these wonderful story songs they just reach out and grab you, you know. Mm. And so I went home and I asked my mother if I could learn to play the guitar. So she borrowed a small nylon string guitar and there I was as a little boy and that was exactly the right kind to get because the, the softer strings were easier on the little fingers and I learned how to play 
by listening to Jim Croce and John Denver and people like that. And so I've been playing guitar for many, many years, but it wasn't until 2014 I had put some songs on a website called Reverb Nation where a lot of musicians go. Many years I had written family-friendly comedy songs that I would performed in college and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And there was a talent agent, no kidding, from New York City who actually contacted me and said, I love your song about how they have hogs in Indiana. Because I went to school at Purdue, which is in Indiana. Right. He said, um, but it's clean. You're, you're a very family-friendly comedian. So have you ever thought of writing for children? I said, no, I never thought of that at all. This is 2014. Mm-hmm. And then it hit me. Well, he assigned me a, a little project to try to write three songs in a week and get back to him. So mm-hmm. I did that. I never really got any further with him, but the advice was very good. One of the three songs was about space, and it's actually the first track on my first album called The Stars Go By. Mm-hmm. Well, a fourth grade teacher friend of mine asked me to come to her school, and I did that to talk to her kids, but I said, you know, I have this song I wrote about space, and she said, ah, bring your guitar, (laughs) the kids (laughs) will love that. So I brought the guitar, and I played the song, and the reaction was so big that I thought, oh, okay, this is what I should have been doing all the time. So all those years I've been playing guitar and writing funny songs, I also played trombone in high school, I studied jazz flute, I learned how to sing a little bit with a band I was in called Shenandoah Run uh, recently, and and managed to um, try to bring all the different skill sets up to a level where I could record an album of original material. So it was a long and winding path, and it didn't intersect this business of the music with the space science until a few years ago. But what a magical combination it has been. And I am so thrilled to have had two albums out now. They've both done well on CD Baby, the uh, independent label online. Mm. The second one made the first round ballot of the Grammys and was considered, although I I did not get a nomination. However, the good news is I managed to communicate with at least three of the um, acts, the the artists that that did get the five Mm -hmm. final nominations for the Children's Best Album. And one of them has asked me to possibly collaborate in the future. So that's a great result to, to get. And it's way more than I would have expected. And recently, the song A Race in Space, which is the title track in my second album, mm-hmm. won a finalist award in the Mid-Atlantic Song Contest by the Songwriters Association of Washington. Wow. I'm really pleased by all these unexpected results. At, at my heart, I'm an engineer. You know, I, I did music as a hobby for many years, but this has become uh, an, an interesting combination that I would not have predicted. I'm now getting ready to produce my own show, which I'm going to call Space Quest with Dr. Jim. And oh, it, that's it, great. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Now, that's so exciting, too. And, you know, there there must be a great deal of satisfaction in all of this coming to fruition. I was a big fan of uh, Fred Rogers when I was a kid. I grew up near mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. I watched his show on WQED Channel 13. Big fan of that. And as people hear me sing and talk in these interviews, they hear a gentle quality in my voice, which is just the way it is. It's just, I'm not trying Mm. to imitate anyone, but people have been assuming that I'm going to go for that sort of thing. But I'd like to be a little more specific about it. I am a big fan of Fred and what he did and, and his message that we should all accept each other and be each other's neighbor and be friendly with each other is something that is just spectacular. I love that message. I completely Mm. agree with it. But that's not the message (laughs) I'm going after. (laughs) What I want to do is a little bit of a different thing. I want to aim Mm -hmm. at some kids a bit older from, say, ages 7 to 12, mm-hmm. and and teach them, if I can, some confidence. I've done a little bit of tutoring at the elementary and high school level mm-hmm. in math and science because I'm an engineer. Mm-hmm. And what I have seen over and over are kids who are very talented, who have all the capability they need to learn and do these, these difficult things, mm-hmm. but what they lack is confidence. They mm-hmm. can't believe that they can actually do this. And what I want to do with my show is pose a space question, the same kind of questions I use when I go visit the schools, mm-hmm. at the beginning, and then use stories and songs and puppet robots to help tell <laughs> the, uh, the, the answer, or at least lead up to it, mm-hmm. and in the half-hour show, allow the viewer of any age to just muse on what the answer might be to that question, such as, is there gravity in space? Does a rocket need air to fly? Things like that. Mm-hmm. And then 
the robots who are from the future, they are, their characters are the companions of Tommy and Laura. And the robots' names are Piper, for a primary pipe inspector on a rocket fuel plant on Mars, uh. and Vista, who's a uh, visual star information manipulator who works on an observatory in a Lagrange point orbit behind the planet Venus. And by the way, NASA's considered putting an astronomy at a Lagrange point behind the planet Venus. So this oh, is, really? yeah, I got to look at that, which is a wonderful thing. And so these two robots beam in from the future to talk to me about early space history, but they won't have it quite right. Dr. Jim, did they put monkeys on the moon? You know, and I'll tell them, well, we, we put chimps into orbit and the Soviets put dogs into orbit, but we didn't send monkeys to the moon. It'll be like that. We're, we're, mm. I'm trying to use a little pleasant humor to um, address some misconceptions mm -hmm. and then use the, the robot characters as a means to not be lecturing the camera, but be to, to, to have a conversation mm -hmm. that leads to these points. And at the, at the end, I'll do the reveal. And I'm hoping to have two songs per episode in addition to the opening theme song. Mm -hmm. And one of the many things that I love about uh, what it is you're talking about, because I, I, I feel like a huge problem today, I'm going to describe it as a dearth of intellectualism. And I just feel like that's extremely dangerous. Um, there was a point where... Uh, it, intelligence was something to be valued and now it seems as if we have hit a point culturally where uh, it's something of which many people are suspicious and we're almost running from it so i like the idea that at a relatively early age you are instilling that confidence uh, in children uh, you know sort of stoking the natural curiosity and encouraging them, you know? And I think that this is potentially the kind of thing that can reach a much broader audience, you know, and maybe remind people that intelligence isn't something to be feared or to be suppressed. You know, the only way forward is if we use our brains to carry us forward. I, I agree, and I, I think the pendulum, maybe I'm being cautiously optimistic here, but I believe that the pendulum is swinging back towards some more uh, confidence in science, technology, and engineering. I think what may have happened partially back in the 1970s when the show Happy Days was on, I watched it, I enjoyed it, but all of a sudden uh, the word nerd became mm -hmm. part of the cultural lexicon mm -hmm. with some negative connotation. And at that point, I was the biggest nerd there could be, and I, I probably still am. But, you know, I, I, I think socially mm -hmm. that, that, was, that was viewed in a certain way for a long time. And I think that it affected uh, generations of people mm -hmm. who didn't want to be viewed as a nerd. But now, one of the top comedies on television is The Big Bang Theory, <laughs> right? If I'm yeah. allowed to say the title. Yeah, and, no, and a show about a bunch of nerds. About a bunch of nerds, but it's <laughs> yeah. incredibly popular. Now, mm -hmm. it's true we're laughing at them. But at the same time, there's real science behind what they're doing. Yes. And uh, where I w work in my day job, you know, there are plenty of people who are big fans of it. In fact, in some cases, it's like uh, reality television for some. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, uh, one of the episodes, a classic one, they were using laser ranging to get the distance to the moon by taking advantage of the reflectors that were left on the surface by the mm. Apollo astronauts. Wow. So my wife and I are watching this show, and I said to her, you know, I've actually done that. <laughs> She's just looking. But, uh, <laughs> so, wow. so there's reality there, and they have a, mm -hmm. a real JPL physicist who's a consultant to the show. And I'm encouraged by the popularity, even though we're making jokes about it, the fact that these scientists are interesting enough to be the basis of a show like that mm -hmm. is encouraging. And, of course, Neil deGrasse Tyson did his sequel to Cosmos, and that was popular enough such that I believe there's going to be another series of that, too. Mm, mm. Well, I certainly hope so. And, you know, because it's, it's, a, very, it's a very negative kind of thing uh, to feel as if you're living in a society that uh, prizes ignorance over actual knowledge and experience. And yet uh, a lot of the uh, events that we are witnessing 
seem to celebrate just that. So, you know, I think it's wonderful that uh, you and, and many others are going in another direction. And as you point out, uh, the, the modern mythology uh, that we are starting to embrace now, and I, I think that there's a lot of good about this too, uh, is uh, while it's fictionally based, uh, it's something that tends to inspire and uh, tends to create an atmosphere where people want to aspire to something bigger, something grander, you know, something bigger than all of us, maybe. At least that's what I hope. And I think we should give credit to NASA for maintaining interest as well, even even with robotic space probes, because mm-hmm. of what we've seen. For instance, when New Horizons went to the planet, the dwarf planet Pluto, Mm-hmm. which, by the way, was still a planet when they launched the, the space probe, which is very funny. But anyway, when they got there and they Isn't saw... Is Pluto a planet again? <laughs> it's being discussed, I guess, but I don't know for sure. But anyway, when they saw the, the heart-shaped ice field of frozen, was it carbon dioxide or monoxide? And and uh, the, the, the moon Charon and the fact that there are other objects in orbit between them and, and what appears to be surface activity on Pluto, which is so far from the sun that is just stunning, those kinds of things, I believe, really are impressing the kids. I can say this firsthand because I go to the schools, I mention this, and I say, did you see those pictures of Pluto? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, we saw him. It looked like this and that. So then I get questions such as, well, why didn't we stay? Hmm. Why did New Horizons just go on past? Well, from an orbital mechanics standpoint, it's because it was moving so quickly you couldn't take a rocket with you big enough to slow it Mm. and do that. Or could you? There's another type of propulsion called ion propulsion, electric propulsion, which was the topic of my own doctoral dissertation and many others. Lots of people looked at this. It's, It's becoming more commonly used. But if one were to have used a nuclear powered spacecraft with electric propulsion, you could have sent it out there and had it slowly break until it got there and it could have stayed into orbit hmm. around Pluto. Uh, and and that's, that's doable. It would take a lot of time, but it could be built. Uh, for instance, the Mars Curiosity rover is also powered by plutonium. I'm very fortunate to have signed the logbook. They scan the names, and so my name is one of a large number, but on the surface of the planet Mars. Hmm. By the way, if I could take a little segue here, that's why the robots come to visit me on my television show. Because ah, in the future, they found your name. They found, the... <laughs> yes, yes. There you go. Yeah, that's the story. And the director of the first museum on Mars, who they work for, is Dr. Hans von Bodenheimer, which is a, a family name in oh, my family. Okay. <laughs> is is uh, Dr. von Bodenheimer a descendant of yours? He's at least related. I'm not sure exactly. But that was my mother's uh, proper maiden name and... Mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I think that's just a funny way to connect it all. Yeah, and he, you know, they research and cross-reference and find that there was some guy years ago who taught space history mm-hmm. using music, who's also a relative. So they come back to find me. So that's my mm-hmm. science fiction story for how. <laughs> yeah, so I really do hope to inspire some kids and make them not afraid of thinking through mm-hmm. a problem and taking their time, and and accepting science as being the truth of nature as we know it. All right, I want to play another song, and since we already did a mission to Europa um, uh, of the stuff that you brought me, this is on the, the second group. And you mentioned A Race to Space, so let's play that. Please set it up for us. Yes, this next song is called A Race in Space, and I was asked by a fourth grade teacher friend of mine in Fairfax to write a song that would teach the order of the planets by both distance and by size, because the fourth graders have to know that, know, know them both, for their standards of learning questions. So I had a wonderful chance to test this song out on about 100 fourth graders a couple of years ago, and they wrote me back with thank you notes saying, thank you, Dr. Jim, I passed my test because of this song. <laughs> Extremely <laughs> gratifying. Anyway, I wrote it to sound like a Beach Boys drag racing song where Tommy and Laura go through the planets in the different orders, but they have a race. This is called A Race in Space. Rocket to go really fast He 
made a better engine using methane gas. If someone tries to catch him, they just watch him fly, cruising round the sun as the stars go by. Laura added extra power to her spaceship's tail. She built herself a motor that would never fail. Her ship could reach the planets in a single run. She could find her way cruising round the sun. The kids went on a race flying round the sun to visit all eight planets passing one by one. Each of them would go in a different way. Who would finish first in a power play? Oh, the kids went on a race in space. At a rapid pace, the kids went on a racing space. Tommy started from the sun to visit Mercury, then Venus and the Earth, and on to Mars to see that Jupiter and Saturn had a lot of moons. Uranus was next, and at last Neptune. Laura started with the smallest, then she found the rest. From Mercury to Mars and Venus, Earth was next. Neptune led to Uranus; they grew in size. Saturn then to Jupiter, the biggest prize. The kids went on a race, flying round the sun to visit all eight planets, passing one by one. Each of them would go in a different way. Who would finish first in a power play? Oh, the kids went on a race in space. They did it at a rapid pace. Rocket many times around the sun, and Laura did the same to get her mission done. And even though they did it in a different way, they got back to Earth on the same great day. The kids went on a race, flying round the sun to visit all eight planets, passing one by one. Each of them would go in a different way. Who would finish first in a power play? Oh, the kids went on a race in space. was uh, a race in space uh, by our guest dr james thorne you know we're almost out of time but i i have had such a wonderful time talking to you and it's so inspirational what you're doing and uh, the fact that you are making science accessible you know i think is so important especially today and so I am going to thank you uh, for what you're doing. And I'm so excited uh, to see your uh, project. I mean, I think that, you know, everybody is going to really uh, love the adventures of Tommy and Laura and uh, their <laughs> companions, Piper and Vista. And um, I'm, I mean, I'm excited about it. <laughs> now, if people who have been listening uh, have become curious about you and about your music, uh, how can they find out more? I'm online in a couple different places. My website is called Jim Thorne Music, that's T-H-O-R-N-E, so it's Jim Thorne Music, one word, dot com, and the other places on Facebook, I have uh, a page there, which is by the same name, and I'm also on CD Baby, which is the largest independent label online, my music is also available on Barnes & Noble, as well as Amazon. Mm -hmm. And wow. all over YouTube as well. I'm, and I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to uh, add onto my own YouTube channel the new show when it comes out. So be watching for Space Quest with Dr. Jim. All right. Dr. James Thorne, thank you so much for having been our guest. <laughs> thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, and that's all the time that we have for today's episode. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Of course, Fantastic Forum is also a television show, and you can catch it here in the... Arlington, Virginia area. If you go to Arlington Independent Media on uh, Comcast Channel 69, Verizon Fios Channel 38, 
television version airs Saturdays and Sundays at 8 p.m. here on Arlington Independent Media. Also, you can catch this episode again Wednesdays at 3 p.m. right here on WERA 96.7 FM. And if you're interested in Fantastic Forum, visit our website at fantasticforum.tv. We've got episodes of the television show. There are episodes of the radio show. We've even got portions of the television show broken out so you can check out interviews and event coverage and toy and game profiles and all sorts of other really really fun stuff and if you can't get enough of this show uh, you can connect with us via the great geek refuge the show is available as a podcast if you go to the website for the great geek refuge so all sorts of different ways to connect with fantastic forum Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell, wishing you a wonderful week. Come back again, same bat time, same bat station.